Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. I would invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 57. Psalm 57, and I'm going to begin our reading this morning with the title. I'll reference it a bit in our message. I think it may have some bearing, but I don't know that there's a lot that we can gather from it. Psalm 57 here is the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, I in the shadow of thy wings will make refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire. Even the son of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. Selah. My heart is fixed. O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Awake up, my glory. Wake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee. O Lord, among the people, I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his holy word. One feature this morning, people of God, that you may have caught with me as I read through Psalm 57 is its very obvious structure. And that structure is evident in verse 5 and verse 11 as the psalmist repeats himself as he says, Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. We'll call that a refrain. And that refrain seems to break the two sections of the psalm into equal parts. And so we have verses 1 through 4 and refrain. Then we have verses 6 through 10. And then we have refrain. Calvin was quick to notice the structure and he comments on the two parts. And he says it like this. In the first, David gives expression to the anxiety which he felt imploring divine assistance 
against Saul and his enemies. And in the second, he proceeds upon the confident expectation of deliverance and stirs his soul up to the exercise of praise. We'll come back to that thought subsequently. But notice here, Calvin observes the twofold structure of the psalm. He notices there's two parts. He says it roughly corresponds to part A being anxiety and part B being praise. Fair enough. Fair enough. It seems thematically that works reasonably well. But I want you to notice that there's another way to structure this psalm. There's another way to structure this psalm, and that is around the word trouble. As you follow the sweep and the movement of the psalm, you can see that it moves from the imploring of God's mercies and crying out to God in verse 1 towards the description of trouble in verse 4. And then we have refrain, and then it begins once again in verse 6 with trouble and the troublers, and it moves away from trouble back to God. And so what that indicates to us is that trouble is the dead center and heart of Psalm 57. The issue then is what does David do with his trouble? That leads us to the thought of this psalm. He exercises faith. So we're going to call this exposition and this sermon message this morning Exercising Faith in the Eye of the Storm. Exercising Faith in the Eye of the Storm. So let's begin thinking about our text with faith challenged. And this is the eye of the storm. And I want to spend just a moment picking and weaving our way through Psalm 57 to take note of the kind of trouble that David was so that we feel ourselves in a sense in the midst of that eye of the storm so that we can appreciate faith's response. And there's several elements to this challenge to faith. And and we can see, first of all, that the generality of the trouble which David encounters is summarized and encapsulated in the word calamities. Look at verse 1. He says, I make my refuge in you until these calamities are overpassed. And this particular word is rich in sense and meaning, and it can mean engulfing ruin or destruction or devastation. Sometimes it refers to the ruin left behind by a powerful and massive windstorm. So I think overall the King James translation here of this particular word as calamities brings out the sense or the meaning fairly fairly well. It is the result of, of destruction and devastation. David says that's his trouble. It's a general term and now we get specifics as we move our way through the rest of the psalm. And so example, we see in verse 3 taunting. He shall send from heaven and save me. And here's the trouble once again from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Reproach. Reproach. The word means to discredit or defy or to mock or to insult. Sarcasm, jeering. It's abusive speech. It's the kind of speech that is intended and aimed at dishonoring and discrediting and defaming. It's character assassination. And notice the attended effect of this speech. 
as David very vividly describes its outcome and result, or aim at least, swallow. Swallow, and the word comes from the world of animals. It's a, it's a term that would describe predators who are, dev- who are chasing down their prey to, to seek after it, to devour it. And so David gives us the intention of the taunting and the verbal assaults made against him. The entire point of it is to destroy David with words and a campaign of lies and deceit. We'll come back to that in a moment because it's unfolded a bit more subsequently. So now it's verbal assaults, and then we get some more sense of the kind of trouble that is David is in in verse 4 when he says, My soul is among the lions, and hardly anything needs to be said about lions because we're all aware of their swiftness and their fierceness and their power and their speed and their ruthless violence. None of us have the courage or faith to be like Daniel, to find ourselves standing firm toe-to-toe, eyeball-to-eyeball in a den full of lions. Lions strike fear in the heart, and yet that's exactly what David characterizes opponents as, as violent predators. He goes on to describe what they are like in terms of verbal assault as we continue on in verse 4. As he says, I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. But notice the vividness of the language. He's among those who are set on fire. It literally means to breathe out flames like a, like a dragon. And of course, this is verbal in nature because he makes it very clear as he references teeth as spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. It's building already on what we've seen in verse 3 about the predatory language. They seek to devour his life. This is lying speech. This is a kind of speech which, a, which is a campaign of smears and lies. The whole point is to so ruin David's name and reputation that he dare not show his face in public again on account of the shame and the humiliation. If you think about it this morning, people of God, there's almost no other kind of painful trouble than to be accused of the most vile, filthy, corrupt, disgusting sins of the world falsely. Because no matter how hard you try to clear your name and reputation, and if it ever is cleared, there's no way people can ever look at you again without remembering at least the context of your name and reputation that it was sullied at one point by lies and defamation. So imagine the worst sorts of things that you could say about a person That's precisely what the enemies of David engaged in verbally as they assaulted him. We see trouble again in verse 6 as David refers to dirty tricks. They prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me and into the midst whereof they themselves have fallen. But we're back to the theme of violence. We've seen violence in the imagery of the lion, and now we're back to violence, and the indication here is predatory. The imagery is of that of hunters, the camouflaging of the net, which would be designed 
to capture up the feet, the covering over the holes with with branches and leaves and sticks, only for David as he's, um, as he's stumbling through the countryside to plant his feet into what he thinks is firm ground, only to tumble inside of a deep pit where he would fall, to break his neck and to lose his life. You see, David's opponents are full of violence. David's men, David's enemies seek his life and they're using treachery and deceit and violence. Notice how it all affects him now, as David says in the middle of verse 6, my soul is bowed down. And the verb here, bowed down, literally means to, to crouch. The senses of a person who is standing and having received the most distressing and, and awful and sorrowful kind of, of news crouches over and puts their hands upon their knees, symbolizing the painfulness and the distress of the news. What David is describing here is affect. What David is describing is the emotional and the psychological and the spiritual impact of his enemies hunting him down and defaming his character. He said it affected my soul. People of God, one of the reasons why I love the Psalms and why I preach the Psalms so frequently is because they're realistic authenticity. It takes virtually no time to read into a Psalm and to begin to feel what the psalmist is feeling. Calvin was right on the money when he said one of the reasons why God gave us the Psalms is to teach us how to feel. To teach us how to feel. And the Psalms are full of palpable emotional expression. And what they teach us to feel is a range of emotions from fear to joy to terror to sadness to disappointment to gratitude to adoration to grief. And the list goes on and on. But the point of it all is to see, people of God, that when we encounter difficulty and trouble, we don't have to be stoical. When our life is in the pit, when we stand in the eye of the storm, when the calamities of life overwhelm us, when our troubles are too great for our strength, when it feels like our prayers are not being answered, when we are overcome with the difficulties of this life, our response is not simply to shrug our shoulders and to simply declare out loud, we just have to take the good with the bad. That is not a life principle for faithful people. It's certainly true we take the good with the bad, but that is not a life principle. David tells us it's okay for us to to grieve and to weep and to cry out. So this morning, if your life is in the midst of the trouble and you're identifying with the psalmist and your emotions, David validates that. If your soul is bowed down, David's going to show you how to handle it. But at least it's honest. The last thing I said I might reference here is the historical context. I, I showed you in the, the title here to the psalm. 
It makes reference to a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. One translation is it's set to do not destroy. What is a mictum? I don't know. There's millions of commentators and none of them agree. What is the time frame? Well, I don't know. We do know from 1 Samuel that David was in the cave of Adullam in uh, 1 Samuel 22. Uh, we know he was in the cave of Engedi in 1 Samuel 24, and he had a, an encounter with Saul there. None of this psalm seems to fit that context, and so I think we can assume that David being on the run from Saul for, for at least a period of a few years, and the very fact that the uh, eastern uh, hillsides of Palestine are covered with caves. This could refer to almost any of those moments that aren't mentioned in the Word of God. But the one thing that I think we can gather from this is this is that season of waiting. This is that season in which David has already been anointed as Israel's next king, and yet it is also that season in which Saul seeks his life. And so it's a, a time of humiliation, of wandering, of threats, and wondering day by day whether the evil people in the world would snuff out his life. And so that's the storm. Calamities, mocking, fierce lions, defamations, dirty tricks, and anxiety. That's the eye of the storm. But I want you to notice here, and I think this is really the heart of the message of God's word for us this morning, is how does faith respond? How is faith to be exercised as we encounter the calamities of life? And, and I want us to begin in verse 1 because here there's a connection of ideas that I think is profoundly powerful and helpful and the psalmist says immediately in verse 1, and this, by the way, is spoken against the backdrop of all the calamities and difficulties and sorrows and struggles and violence he's in the midst of. He cries out, be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. And the thing that I want us to take note of here is the temporality signaled here in verse 1, the chronology signaled here in verse 1, because uh, what is not first is the prayer. The prayer is not first in the manner of time. What is first in the manner of time is signaled by the word for, because as David cries out, be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for... My soul trusteth in thee. What he's telling us is that the very first thing he did as he responded to his calamities is trust. He exercised his faith. He exercised his faith. And the result of the exercise of faith is the prayer. So I just want us to look, first of all, at this heartfelt faith. My soul trusteth in thee. The arrows are flying past his head. The nets have been camouflaged. The pits are being covered over. The violent lions circle about him. And yet, what is David's response? My soul trusteth in thee. And this is the deepest and the most heartfelt kind of trust. 
Because the emphasis, if you will, here is my soul. My soul trusteth in thee. And so this um, exercise of faith seems to flow out of the, the deepest sense and awareness and consciousness of the fact that there's nowhere else to go. And notice where he directs this unflinching faith. To God as a refuge, as he says, in the shadow of thy wings I will make my refuge. It's taken again from nature of a mother bird guarding her chicks from predators. But the image is full of warmth tenderness, a sense and awareness that when one takes themselves by faith to the Lord, that there is real security, that there's real peace, that there's real comfort, that there's real consolation. It seems as if it's that very experience of running to God by faith and finding refuge under the shelter of his wings that the prayer itself flows because it seems as if there is something that he senses as he runs to Christ. That God is a God of mercy. And so here is the prayer. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me. You see, faith's response to calamities is to trust in God. And when we trust in God, God does something marvelous to us. He gives us a sense that he is a God of mercy. And we remember this morning, people of God, what mercy is, biblically speaking. It's the divine determination to show compassion to the helpless. Mercy is the divine determination to show compassion and pity towards the helpless. So as he exercises this faith in the God in the midst of his calamities, one of the things that he is aware of is his unworthiness. What he is aware of is his weakness. What he is aware of is his helplessness. And then what he is aware of as he runs to God as his refuge and trusteth in him is that God is ready to show mercy. Then from here we see a series of convictions which suspend and support this faith. And I think really this may be the heart of, of the message of Psalm 58 to us. It's wonderful to know that if we take our soul and our very heart and we pour it out before the Lord and transparency before him and trust in him that we know he will show mercy, that he is a God of mercy. But, but notice here how that faith is reinforced by way of expression as you move into verse 2 and verse 3. And, and the first of faith convictions, and there's several of them here that I see, but the very first of faith convictions is that God is almighty. Notice what he says in verse 2. I will cry out unto God most high. And the word for most high is Elyon. And it's a Hebrew title found throughout the Old Testament to focus upon the sovereignty and the supremacy and the total control of God over life. 
the thing that faith is convicted of, the thing that faith is gripped by, at the heart of our Christian comfort as we stand in the eye of the storm is that God is sovereign. He's in total control. We are creatures. Creation surrounds us. The very trouble that we face is creaturely. But our appeal is to not to the greatest powers of this age. It's to God who transcends everything, who is the creator and the maker of the heavens and earth. El Yon. And so David here cries out to God. He cries out for mercy, but as he does so, he reminds himself of the fact that God is sovereign. And the second thing is almost a theology lesson. As we read on the verse 2, we see he cries out unto God, unto God, or rather it could say the God, that performeth all things for me. So there's a couple of things here that are, are very important about what the psalmist is saying, because what the psalmist is saying is two things. Number one, he is saying that God performs and the second thing he is saying is that God has a plan. You see, that's literally what this word performs means here. As David uses this term, God performeth all things for me. This word says that God fulfills or makes things happen according to a purpose. So our minds immediately go here, right, to, to Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purpose. But see, right here at the, at the heart of the theology of Romans 8.28 is that God is not just a sovereign God, but God is a planning God. That God is a purposeful God. That everything that happens in this life happens according to a divine, sovereign, eternal plan. There's nothing random. And so as much as the trouble that we find ourselves in regularly feels like it's chaotic and not sensible to us, faith says what? Faith says everything happens for a reason. Because everything has a cause, everything has a purpose, every single event. And so David is exercising faith as he says, this hasn't happened by chance. Isn't this what our solace is in the midst of our calamities? The trouble may have been of your doing, could have been of your sins, could have been of your words. But the solace is that God has a purpose and that he has a plan behind everything. Everything in our life has come by divine appointment, even the trouble. But that's not it because David here goes on to say that God doesn't just have a plan, but God performs. Remember again, back to, to Paul's theology in Romans 8, 28, that God works everything for good. Reminded here of one of the most pastoral statements, uh, at least in my opinion, the Heidelberg Catechism and his exposition of what it means when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
And the answer says that not only is every evil thing that comes upon me in this veil of tears according to his plan, but further it says he will turn it to my good. He will turn it to my good. So it's not just that my life is miserable and I can thank God for it. No, that my life is miserable and I'm having trouble and difficulties and calamities feel like they will engulf me. But the heart of my Christian comfort is not just that there's a plan, but that God will overcome it. And why can I believe that? Because he's not just sovereign, but he's our father. Our father, which art in heaven. He is our father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he's our father, we can count on the fact that he will take whatever evil, whatever trouble, whatever sorrow, whatever pain, and he could take it for our good. Reminds us of the language of Psalm 138. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. He will not forsake the work of his hands. The third conviction of faith here is God can do miracles. Look at verse 3. He shall send from heaven and save me. Calvin nails the sense here as he says, heaven is opposed to earthly or natural means of deliverance. Heaven. He will send from heaven. You see, this is what we all hope, right, when we pray. We're in the creaturely situation. We're down below. Our feet are touching the ground. And as far as we can tell from all the resources that we can muster and maybe the resources of our family, maybe the resources of the church and maybe the resources of the smartest, most intellectual people in the world, we still find that we don't have the answer. But here's what faith hopes and this is what faith prays for is that God will send from heaven. He will do something godlike. He will do something divine. And we know and believe in this because he transcends the human and earthly powers. And so it reminds us is that when we stand in the midst of our troubles and sorrows and difficulties, we stop digging and we start praying. I'm sure you've all heard of that well-worn phrase, when you find yourself in a hole, Stop digging. That's the beginning of the solution of the problem. Stop making it worse. But the problem is that we're fidgeters. The problem is that we're fixers. The problem is that we're terribly self-reliant. The problem is we think that if we tinker enough with something, we'll figure it out. And one of, important problem, one of the most important things that we can do when we stand in the midst of our problems and our calamities is to realize we are no match for our problems. We are no match for our problems. And so what David shows us here as he cries out to God to send from heaven and to save is to remind us that we don't have the strength or the mind or the wisdom or the intellect to find our way out. What we need is a solution that is heaven sent. We stop digging and we start praying. And we trust, as David does, 
that God will act. And that brings us to the fourth and the final thing here in verse 3, that he will send from heaven and save from the reproach that would swallow me up. Salah, God will send forth his mercy and his truth. This is the fourth conviction that David exercises here is that he trusts that God acts according to his character. And at the heart of the character that David spotlights about God is mercy and truth. That word mercy is translated in many other translations as loving kindness. It is the word chesed, which appears so many times in the Old Testament, I've forgotten the count, but it's, it's, it's in the hundreds and hundreds of times, and it's usually connected with the covenant. And it's at the heart of the covenantal idea that God is faithful to his covenant and to his promises and to his people. And so David here as a child of the covenant in the midst of his sorrows and woes and difficulties and calamities reminds himself what is central to him about this God with whom he stands in covenant with. He is a God of chesed, of loving kindness, and of mercy, and that God acts according to his character. Calvin says that mercy and truth are the hands of God by which he extends assistance to his people. So we saw faith challenged. We saw faith exercised. And before we move on to see faith exulting, I think it's important for us to just take in this moment and and to breathe in this marvelous expression of faith. This statement of verse 1 is now more profound to us as we we understand it against the backdrop of the sorrows and the woes and the violence and the defamation and the danger. My soul trusteth in thee. Because now we understand what conviction stood behind that firm and unwavering and unflinching faith. And it's this conviction that God is El Yon. He is the Most High, that He is sovereign, that God has a plan and He will work it for our good, that God does work in miracles every day in the lives of His people, and that He acts according to His character, mercy and truth. And so, people of God, I invite you to think upon this this marvelous picture of faith exercised here and bring yourself into the thought world of David and all of your troubles. This is for us this morning, people of God. This is for us as we stand today. Maybe perhaps you have difficulties and sorrows and troubles and calamities in your life. The Word of God is speaking to you. Step one is you face all of these challenges is to simply say, as David said, my soul trusteth in thee. And then reinforce that faith commitment by reminding yourself of all of this rich biblical truth about God. And what you'll find is that your soul Your faith has an anchor firmly rooted in God as a divine refuge, powerful, 
purposeful, miracle-working, faithful, you'll know composure, wholeness, the sense of well-being. All that seems to be indicated as we pivot now towards the home stretch of the psalm in verse 9. Because as we come into, rather, verse 7, it breathes a different thought world, doesn't it? We've been in the midst of the fray. We've stood in the eye of the storm. We have felt like the winds of calamity were going to blow us over and wreak havoc upon our life. But this is so different. Notice the language here of verse 7. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. The mood is so different here. David has spelled out the crisis of faith. Turmoil has cast its shadow over his life. And now this word leaps off the page at us. Fixed. It's about fullness of determination and resolve. Something has changed internally inside of David as he's trusted in God and as he's reminded himself of his theology and his belief systems about God and about faith's conviction. His heart is quieted. But isn't that how faith works? Isn't that how faith works? We find ourselves in circumstances that are far beyond our capacity. We try everything we can do to fix ourselves in our situation. What do you find is it looks more hopeless than when we began. The fingerprints of our failure are all over it. And finally, what do we do? We throw up our hands and we start praying. And what is it that you feel when you do that? The relief, the overwhelming sense of the fact that you're not alone in your sufferings. That knowledge and sense and awareness of the power and the presence and the peace of God begins to grip you spiritually and in your soul. And all of a sudden, your hearts are now in the midst of calm waters. That's David. David here is fixed to worship the Lord. Look at verse 8. It's a It's an early praise. He says, awake up my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. He greets the dawn with music. And it's energetic. He says, awake, 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 psaltery and harp. This isn't tepid praise. This is wholehearted, jubilant praise. Banging on drums kind of praise. It's international praise. Look at verse 9. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nation. David moves now from his prayer closet or his prayer walk to the rooftops. And he's, and he's shouting out before the people. He praises the Lord. He's got this deep, heartfelt joy in God through Christ. And he wants to share it with the world. What happened? We'll look at verse 10. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens and thy truth to the, to the clouds. 
You see, that four expresses and gives the reason for why we've had this change of mood. What David is impressed with is the very truth we just saw in verse 3, that God's mercy is stacked as high as the heavens and his truth is stamped across the skies. That was faith's conviction before, but now he's internalized it and he's so internalized it and it's so gripped his soul that he can do nothing else now. He's cried out for God most high. He's assured himself that God has a plan and a purpose. He knows that God can do miracles and work from heaven above. He knows that God acts according to his character that is mercy and truth. And so now he can just let go and begin to praise God. Now, some will look at verse 6 and they'll say that there could have been um, a solution to David's problem because it says here, they prepared a net for my steps and my soul is bowed down. They digged a pit for me and into the midst where they are following themselves, Selah. And it seems maybe there was a partial answer to some of David's prayers and concerns. But I remind you what Calvin said as we began to Uh, expound this psalm and he noted there was two parts here the one anxiety and the other praise but but as he turned to the comment on the praise he said he proceeds upon the confident expectation of deliverance so even calvin looks at this and says it doesn't quite seem that david has in the grasp of his hand the answers that he's prayed for just yet And there's good reason to say that because Psalm uh, 57 ends with the prayer request, Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above the earth. You see, that is a call, that is a prayer for God to act more. And so a responsible conclusion is that David is still yet in the eye of the storm. He's trusted. He's prayed, and now he's exulting. He's worshiping as if victory is already in hand. And why does he do that? Because he has confidence in God. And people of God, this is the final element that we want to think about this morning as we think about exercising faith in the eye of the storm. Yes, it is about trusting in God. And yes, it is about imploring Him for His mercies. And yes, it is reinforcing ourselves in the truth about God. But once we have taken all of that and we have laid that out before the Lord and we have poured out our heart in our prayers, David shows us the proper response of the believer is to exalt in Him. The storms of life don't have to fully subside. The prayers don't have to be definitively answered. That's what David is saying here. Praise begins because faith has been exercised and reassured as it takes itself and pours out the heart before God and is reminded that he is a God of mercy. That all will be well. All will be well. And so, what is David teaching us? What David is teaching us is that there's often going to be a gap between the prayers uttered and offered and the full divine answer. 
you know that to be true. This is quite often where the believer's life is. You have an illness that you pray over that doesn't fully resolve. You have a financial hardship that isn't ended because you prayed about it. You have relationships in your life that are broken and didn't get mended and fully renewed and restored the first time you prayed. We understand that, don't we? That's the gap. That's the gap that David is in. But exercising faith in the eye of the storm is reminding ourselves that the exercise of faith in the eye of the storm is what we're called to do. And then faith lets it go, turns it over to God with the assurance that he performs all things for me. And so the soul and the heart is quieted. And then we rest confidently and face conviction. God is sovereign. God has a plan. God works everything for good. God can and will do miracles. God acts according to his character. And with that renewed confidence in our convictions, we can start exalting in God and praising him, knowing that victory is in his time and in his hand. And in the meantime, our soul exults in him and finds peace. I don't know what trouble you're in this morning. God. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.